0: In his famous book, The Sunflower, Simon Wiesenthal tells us the story of his years spent in a Nazi concentration camp, imprisoned as an Austrian Jew. So many different atrocities and agonies accompanied Wiesenthal's experience. But perhaps the most poignant moment of all came In one particular day, when Wiesenthal was called upon to help work the grounds of a military hospital, Wiesenthal was called into the room of a 21-year-old SS soldier by the name of Carl Seidel. Seidel lay on a gurney, mortally wounded, with only hours left to live. And Seidel's last formal request of other people, of his countrymen, was, bring me a Jew. In this particular case, Seidel's intentions were not to harm, but to ask for help. In the last minutes and hours of his life, Carl Seidel knew who he was And he understood what he'd done, and what he'd failed to do. And so in these last moments, he wanted to talk to a representative of the people to whom he'd done such wrong, and he wanted to make his dying confession. As Wiesenthal sat there silently listening to the young man's testimony, he learned the story of his life. Seidel had grown up in a Christian home. His parents were church-going folks. They followed Jesus. But at age 16, longing to belong to His group of peers, he'd joined the Hitler Youth and then been caught up in the way of that world. And then at age 18, he'd become a member of the SS, the elite, brutal fighting force. And over the next several years, Seidel's life became something he never dreamed it would become. And it became so by subtle degrees. On one particularly evil night, Carl helped to round up 300 children, Jewish children, women and men, and they herded them all into a three-story house with whips. And then some of the soldiers set the house ablaze. We heard screams and saw the flames eating their way from floor to floor, Seidel told Wiesenthal. We had our rifles ready to shoot down anyone who tried to escape from that blazing hell. And the screams from that house were, were horrible. And behind the windows of the second floor, I saw a man. He had a small child in his arms, and his clothes were on fire. With his free hand, the man covered the child's eyes, And then he jumped into the street. And then from the other windows fell burning bodies. And we shot and we shot. Oh, God, Carl said. Oh, God. He told Wiesenthal how he was haunted constantly by the memory of a dark-eyed boy of about six years of age. He was a small, scared, defenseless kid. And Carl murdered him. This kid that was a Sunday school boy himself once murdered him. Throughout this entire recounting, Simon Wiesenthal simply sat there. He never uttered a word. He swatted flies away from Carl's face, which was bandaged up with just nose holes and mouth and eye holes. And one time he gave him a drink of water as Carl went on and on. Though Wiesenthal never spoke to him, he said that he was absolutely certain that Carl was profoundly sorry for his crimes. That Carl understood as fully as it's possible for a human being to understand their sin, the full nature of his own depravity not just in the atrocious acts that he had committed, but even in the subtle sins, the ones we so easily ignore or rationalize or pass off. Wiesenthal said that Carl was utterly repentant. And at the close, Carl said, and I quote, I am left here with my guilt. I know that what I have told you is terrible. Time and time again, I have longed, to talk about it to a Jew and beg forgiveness from him, only I didn't know if there were any Jews left. I know that what I am asking is almost too much for you, he said to Simon. But without your answer, Without your answer, I cannot die in peace. And with that plea ringing in his ears, Simon Wiesenthal stood up and walked out of the room without saying anything. He left Carl there to die alone as he shortly did. He left him there never to hear that one word that meant more to life then life to him in the end, that simple word, that profound word, that life changing word, that word of Jesus, forgiven. <laughs> Do you blame Wiesenthal? Would you have done differently if you were in his shoes, do you think? Would you have let somebody who had stolen innocence, hope, life, and love from other people, would you let them off the hook in the end? Would you spare a thieving criminal the payment and the punishment for their sins, the ones they fully deserve, just because now, at the last minute, they feel sorry? Would you have done differently than Simon did? What kind of... Of person forgives a thief like that. The Bible tells us that on this day long ago, the Roman equivalent of the SS troops force marched a band of prisoners out to the place where they had executed a lot of Jews. <laughs> oh, a lot of Jews had died in this place. And when they came to the place of the skull, the place called the skull, in Aramaic the word is Golgotha, there they crucified Jesus along with two criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots, the Bible says. The people stood watching And the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. Fat chance, they thought. And the soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and they said, "If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself." In other words, just try, just try to jump from that second story, you're not going to escape this blaze. You're going to hell. But the religious leaders and the soldiers were not the only Nazis on the scene. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us, he said. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our sins, our deeds deserve. But this man, this man has done nothing wrong. It was a Carl Seidel moment, I think. It really was. This man had to have been very wicked. This one on the right, the second thief, he had to have been very wicked and very hated to wind up on that cross. It was not a good resume he brought to that place. But he clearly understood his position. He was profoundly sorry for his crimes, it seems. He knew he could not take them back. He could not undo the pain and the loss that he had occasioned to others. He understood that he was absolutely getting exactly what his deeds deserved. If they were all played out, if they were all held accountable to him for them, this was what he deserved. And in this moment, he could, I suppose, have pulled back from the horror of that self-realization. I mean, he could have. He, he could have lashed out selfishly at the person closest to him, the way the first thief did. He could have summoned up his inner Nazi, I suppose, and blamed others for being the source of his problems, for not being quick enough to bail him out of his issues, his needs, as the first thief did. The second thief could follow the pattern of that first thief, and he could go to his grave, arrogant and unredeemed. Or that Carl on the cross could die humbly instead. He could die honestly instead. He could confess his sins. He could acknowledge that he was suffering no more than he deserved to. He could turn toward Jesus. He could throw himself on the mercy of God and plead to be forgiven and not forgotten, which, as you know, was a ridiculous request, an unrealistic, ridiculous request, considering who he was and what he'd done. And yet he made the request anyway. Then he said, Jesus, Jesus, a name which means God saves us, Jesus. Remember me when you come in to your kingdom. As we come ourselves to this cross and table tonight, it strikes me that we are more like these men than we may comfortably consider. We may not be a literal Nazi. I don't believe there is one here in the room. We may not be a legal criminal. There may be a few of us that have crossed those lines. But we have done some thieving over the course of our journey. Every one of us has. Every one of us. Has done some thieving. We've stolen credit or glory that belong to God or to the people that He put around us in this life. And we did it for one reason we're proud and we're selfish. In our darkest moments, in our deepest nature, so often we're still very proud and very selfish. We've taken liberties for ourselves that we have denied to other people and we have condemned them for the very things which we have done ourselves. We've lied, we've cheated, we've stolen in ways that we don't even think about anymore because it became such a a rationalized pattern of behavior for us long ago. But if it was suddenly exposed to our loved ones, if it was suddenly published in our papers we would be humiliated. We would find it hard to live in the neighborhood. We have hoarded so much more material resource than we have truly needed. We have convinced ourselves that it is ours by right by virtue of the accident of where we were born. We have done this all the while, while women and children and men who struggled and starved and died for lack of the very things we throw away Languished on, and we have pretended to ourselves that we don't know. We may never have pushed people into a burning house, we may never have confined them behind razor wire, but we have concentrated whole groups of people in our imaginations into camps so we can conveniently manage them our understanding of them, our expectations of them, and dispose of them in our minds as full, beloved human beings. We may not have literally raped, truly killed, but be honest with yourself. In our minds, we have taken what we lusted for And we have abused those we hated. And we've done it even to people in church sometimes. And we've failed to see that to God, there's no difference, Jesus says, between intent and action. Now, when somebody points out things about me like that guy up front right now is pointing out about you, I struggle with it. Even though I'm included in everything that's just been said, I struggle with it. There's this voice within me, like that first thief. I want to lash out at the person close enough to me to actually see the truth about me. I, 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 I make excuses for my behavior. I demand that others do more to make life good for me. I can be so colossally arrogant, so amazingly avoiding of my responsibility for my own sin. But I go there in part, and maybe, maybe some of you go there in part as well, because it is just so hard to believe that if we actually came clean, if we actually look deeply at the darkness within our souls, if we actually admitted it to one another and confessed it fully in every detail before God, there is no one, there is no way we could possibly be met with anything other than the kind of silent condemnation that Carl Seidel, understandably, I suppose, received from Simon Wiesenthal. And that reality of our fundamental hopelessness, that there is a way out of our sinfulness at the core because we're still putting on acts. We're still pretending. We're still not telling the truth. We're still stuck in so many of these patterns. That fundamental hopelessness is the major reason why we so desperately need Jesus. Oh, how... (laughs) We need Jesus. We need Jesus' word to us. Because if ever there was somebody who could have greeted that repentant thief's words with stony silence, it was Jesus. If ever there was a being entitled to say too much sin, too little good, too late remorse, It was Jesus. But the Bible teaches this amazing truth that the heartbreak of God over the thieving, conniving, arrogance, and cruelty of human beings is only exceeded by the heartthrob of God over the possibility of still recovering us. One by one back to his home and heart, Much has been said through the years over the words of Jesus in verse 34 in this passage. Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And people talk as if that must be the height of grace. And it is amazing grace indeed. He's forgiving people who are clueless. And sometimes we think that this is the height of grace to forgive people that are stupid and ignorant. And then just to move on from them and be done with dealing with them. But that is not even close to the magnitude of the love of God we meet in Jesus. God's aim is not just to forgive the fact that I am a pseudo-Nazi and barely know it. God's aim is to bring me back into intimate fellowship with him so that I'm a purveyor of life and of love and of hope instead of the dealer of death and darkness that I so often am in one way or another. And that is why, when the limited confession and the late repentance of that Carl on the cross we meet in Luke's gospel could have rightly been met with a Simon-like silence and the shadow of God's back as he walked out the door, we encounter something else altogether. And this is amazing. We see Jesus raising himself up on the nails to draw another agonized breath into his lungs. We see Jesus turning his blood-streaked head, pierced by that crown of thorns, his face rivuleted with tears, and we see him looking into the eyes, of that thief. And we hear the condemning silence of Simon, the condemning silence of our enemy, our adversary. We hear that condemning silence shattered by the redeeming cry of God with his last gasp, welcoming a child home. And Jesus answered him, the scriptures say, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. So here's a question to think about. As I close this meditation tonight, most of us are pretty clear about where Jesus placed himself for our redemption. We're clear on it. Are we equally clear on our location? Where are we among these thieves we've been talking about? Am I like that guy on the left of Jesus? Am I going to go to my grave still arrogantly self-deceived about my condition, still justifying my actions, still blaming other people, still waiting for somebody else to, to do for me? Or am I more like the sinner on the right side of Jesus? Am I like the one who's nearer to that table over there? Do I know my real position before God? Am I willing to humbly confess my sin and pray for a mercy I know I do not deserve? Will I risk being met with silence? Will I be that humble that I'll wait on Him? Will you? Because if our answer is no, then we are lost. This world will be lost. Like the soul of that first thief. But if you will truly, if you will humbly turn toward Jesus tonight, if you will give up all hope in your own Righteousness, and put your whole trust in the sufficiency of his goodness and his grace alone, you will not be met with silence, brothers and sisters. For the message of this cross and the message of this table is for you, Carl. It's for you, Carla. It's for all of us. It's for every person on the planet that will open themselves up to it. For I tell you the truth, if you've done these things, you've offered yourself to his mercy and his grace, I tell you the truth, you are with him now. And you're going to be with him forever for the, by the very power of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ in the very name of Jesus who hung on the cross and went beyond in the name of everything he told us and did for us. And hopes for us. This I say unto you you are forgiven. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. Go and do likewise. Amen.